0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Cowkey. Today, my guest is Laura Ashley-Timms. She's the co-author of The Answer is a Question, and she's the Chief Operating Officer of Notion Limited, which is a well, well well-established coaching firm operating in large enterprises. Laura, welcome. Thank you.
1: Hi, Marcus.
0: Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your history, please, so people understand a little bit about context?
1: Of course. Well, my actual um, history in my career started when I was a young child, about nine years old, when I was reading a children's comic. And that really inspired me to set my first goal. And that changed everything because I went on to transform my childhood into one focused on sport, a performance sport. And within that journey, I had a coach. And then through university, that carried on through Oxford. And then when I started my international career, I went into very fast paced, large scale organisations straight out of university. And I got exposed to so many different leaders and managers all over the world and different cultures, different styles. But the thing that they almost all had in common, especially in the sector I was in, was a very command and control tell culture. So lots of hard work, lots of slapping the table, lots of just do it now. And you kind of learn just to work really long and really hard to be good. I moved out of that career into a slightly different sector, into a family business that was globally successful. So a smaller SME, but really fast growth, best known for the teletubbies. So I effectively <laughs> the teletubbies for many years, had a lot of fun, again, very international, very different sector, but similar challenges. You know, how do you engage people? How do you work with people? And I've had this thread of coaching throughout my life. It was really around that time that I'd really started to develop my NLP skills, my coaching skills more formally and getting qualifications around it. And then shortly after then, I set up Notion, co-founded Notion, uh, with my CEO, current CEO, a gentleman called Dominic. And we have been running the business now for 23 years, frighteningly. So that's all a long time ago, that early career. But it gave me a really, really good base for a, what I do now, but also for my real understanding about everything is about the bottom line. It's about being pragmatic and being commercial.
0: So, tell me about the uh, genesis of the book because um, I, I know it's exceptionally well received. It's a phenomenally uh, well thought through book, very well researched, and you've obviously got some fantastic academic credentials with the LSE study um, that goes behind the work. But I'm really curious to understand what triggered the decision to write this specific book?
1: Well, it's probably a long time coming that we've wanted to find a way of sharing the learnings we've had over the last 15 years in organizations with a broader audience. It was brought about really from the study is that we've known that the concepts we've designed around driving what we call operational coaching, so getting managers to move from that tell culture I was talking around earlier, to an inquiry-led approach, and so learning to bring some of those sort of key skills more associated with coaching into everyday management. So we've known that's worked for a very long time, but we didn't necessarily have the evidence base to make it a no-brainer. And when we did the study you just mentioned for the UK government to look at if what we do would drive UK productivity and had the privilege of that being completely tested in a pure academic sense across 14 sectors, 62 organisations by the London School of Economics and have that really empirical proof now that this works in all areas and all sectors, it then made sense at that point to finish the book we've been talking about writing for years and years and years and make our IP, our models and our technologies much more accessible to a broader audience.
0: To put this into context, I remember reading a CBI stat, I think it was the 2019 stat, saying that um, a 7% improvement in nine management competencies is enough to deliver a 100 billion increase in UK GDP. So what I'm really curious to understand is given that kind of leverage with such a, a small incremental improvement across a range of areas, why isn't management? the most obvious area for leadership to focus their attention on because of the catalytic effect?
1: That is a brilliant question. That's a fantastic question. And we should really get everyone to think about that in their own organisations who's listening to this. Why is people management not top of the agenda at the moment in all of your organisations? And for yourself as well, when you're thinking about your own day job, I think the reality is, Marcus, it is becoming top of the agenda. There has definitely been a shift post-pandemic With what has happened with the swing in the workplace cultures, from it being more around the employer having the uphand, if you like, to the employee starting to stipulate having worked from home for so long during the pandemic, having a real shift in values and lifestyle choices that things have got to change. And part of that has driven a massive need now for us to upskill our managers to be better people managers, because we are. Facing more and more work, we expect to do more and more with less resource, less time. We've now got complexity of managing hybrid working. We've seen things like the great resignation, where people are choosing their lifestyle over their careers. And we've also obviously got the whole new trend now of quiet quitting. So the pressure on the manager has never been greater. And like you say, there's a lot of evidence now to prove that if we can improve our management, it will transform our commercial performance in organizations. So this is the era now of focusing on our people and our people managers. So I think we're beginning to see the shift. I've just come out Uh, from New York and from another event in London where you're definitely getting the sense that large organisations are starting to put this agenda close to the top of their agenda. Well,
0: I'm going to push back a little bit because I'm seeing a depressing swing back in the other direction. And for leaders who are considering trying to reimpose back in the office. Can we point to some empirical evidence as to why this may not necessarily be the most intelligent and the most profitable and the most sustainable way forward? Because I think what tends to happen is there's a swing one way and then they overcompensate and swing the other. And what I'd like to be able to do is maybe for people who are listening Posit the right questions so that they stop and they think, well, why are we swinging back that way? Is there a compromise? And what can we get by maybe speaking to our people and having them coach us on what they need in order to create this the right conditions?
1: It is a really challenging situation right now with moving from everyone working at home to having a hybrid and some organisations want people coming back into the office. Certainly from my conversations in recent months with organisations, everyone is treading on eggshells at the moment. So from the organisational perspective, they want a lot of people to come back in for collaboration, but they also accept productivity might be better in some sectors. And I think it's sector specific. I don't think it is a one-size-fits-all, Marcus. There are some sectors we spoke to that have got evidence that productivity has dramatically increased with people working from home, other sectors where it's been a disaster. And it's really, really impacting their ability to collaborate, innovate, and really drive some of the work they're trying to do and deliver their project. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. I do think each organization needs to find the right balance. I imagine most sectors and most organizations will end up with a hybrid format of some element. How many days each way? I think that will be organization-by-organization specific. But it is about really being honest with yourself. There is no point in saying you want to work from home and then spend your life sitting in a cafe perched on a chair on the edge of Starbucks with poor Wi-Fi and because you really want to be surrounded by people. And actually, it's quite lonely at home. And we've also got to be respectful as line managers and leaders in our organization that there are certain populations where the home environment doesn't have the capacity and space. Are they actually working on the edge of their bed versus in a beautiful office? Some of us have the privilege of having nicer homes than others and space to work from home. So we, again, how do we teach by osmosis? How do the younger people in our organisation learn from their experienced peers if they're not getting those coffee cooler moments and the water cooler moments and those informal opportunities to jump into a meeting, listen to a phone call and areas like that. So it really does vary. You can't, you can't just fix it with a magic one set and we're all going to work from home or we're all going to work back in the office. and There are different pressures. It has to also be commercial. I think it's very easy for an employee saying, but this is what I want. But if the business is losing money, there has to be some pragmatic answers. Well, the challenge,
0: I think, is that so many organizations have been guilty of the lazy why and overemphasizing the balance sheet and oversimplifying the problem. Uh, The reality is what we're dealing with here. Are really complex, messy, wicked problems that are intertwined. And the trick with trying to get to even have a vague understanding of these things is understand what the upstream causes are and where they intersect. And um again, management is the the intersection, they, they are the executors, the people who have to execute the how to the board's what. And in order to execute, it's not the managers who need to be doing it, but they're so often a bottleneck or uh, they're so often um, the people who feel just utterly under pressure from both sides because they don't know how to manage properly. And what they have is this command and control process. And I was speaking to someone on the pod a couple of days ago, and the stat now is over 60% of managers in sales today have some form of stress related mental condition now that strikes me as a monumentally stupid way to manage things because it's incredibly dangerous to have so many pivotal people at risk and why would you why would you want to put your people in that position so i think we're failing to ask the right questions so what are the questions leaders should be asking about managers their real value and how we can put them in the position where they're really doing their job, which is creating the conditions for their team to perform optimally against the job to be done, against the shared goal.
1: That's a really real situation that you're playing out there, Marcus. And I think the thing to, the questions you need to be considering is what would have to happen for me to get 20% of my time back You touched there on the stress that managers are under right now and the amount of wellbeing issues that are in the current workplaces that we are seeing. And this comes back to the fact that managers are taking on more and more work the whole time. They are pushed, as you said, between the organisational strategy and the senior leadership agenda and helping that get translated down to the broader population of organisations. But the reality is but we're mostly doing other people's work. People come to us with a problem. We were the technical experts, the subject matter experts, so we try and solve their problems. Our, we feel it's our responsibility to help them and take work off them. But we need to ask much better questions. So one of the questions needs to be, should this be me? When someone comes to you <laughs> the problem, we've got to consider, is this something that I should be taking off them and doing myself? Should this be me, or is there another route here, another way forward? And by developing the power of learning to ask really insightful questions, and instead of answering that question with how to solve the problem, because you only know what you know, learning to actually push back by asking really well-crafted questions to help the person that's just come to you, do the heavy lifting and the thinking for themselves. And when you develop that skill, which is a lot of the stuff that we cover in the book, you find people stop coming to you with problems or when they do they're playing out some solutions to, to discuss with you which they can then help get to a very quick result on and so fact, how
0: quickly do you see that
1: shift it can be extreme extremely quick so in our programs we can make transformation within as quickly as six months across organizations but for an individual it can be within a matter of days They can learn to ask a question after a one-hour module, the first module. They go out and do an exercise, a mini-mission, where they go and ask a question. And there, in that first time they learn to think about that question, they can see something different happen. And it can happen very quickly after that. So within a few weeks, a few months, you absolutely see a shift. And for sales teams... This can be significant. We've got many, many sales managers come back to us and literally say they've got a day, a week back to work on higher value tasks. They say their team are bringing them solutions. They see their gross profit go up. They see their pipeline grow. It can make a massive, massive difference to the outcome, commercial performance of the organization. But coming back to your point on stress, people are less overwhelmed because other people around them are doing more of the heavy lifting and they get time back to do higher value work.
0: So. This sounds to me like one of the most important skills that one can develop as a manager is the ability to establish very clear boundaries and expectations on both sides, and to ensure that the problem leaves with the person who brings it.
1: That would be a very good outcome, but also the confidence is built in the person that brings the problem, that they are excited and able and confident to go away and deliver the outcome themselves. So that comes about the way you're building trust, the way you're listening actively to that person, the way you're helping them develop their own thinking and their own confidence. So it's partly learning to craft that question. And then it's also for the best line managers, it's learning to really think proactively about how do I enable this person to be even better? So it's asking yourself those questions about, is it a skill they need to develop? Is it a will and motivation factor for them? Really understanding their values and what gets them motivated and what gets them to really want to excel at their job. So, there's the early part about how you change as a line manager to think about how you change your immediate response to stop telling and learn to ask. That's the first half of the change you need to be making. And then, once you've mastered that, to become a really outstanding people manager is then learning to think proactively of how you make your team even more successful and even better. And Every step they take up that ladder, you are going to accelerate your career success as well. Uh,
0: Well, to my mind, this doesn't really sound any different to being a decent salesperson, because the job of a salesperson is to facilitate the right decisions in the buyer and to help them advance their understanding. And The best salespeople coach their customers to a solution that has their fingerprints all over it, and there's zero resistance because it feels like it's been a cooperation. It's you've worked together on this, and so they feel safer with you next to them on their journey than without you. So, how are are you seeing any differences
1: in terms of the skill set? 100% complimentary, absolutely, Marcus. The people that come through the program that have sales function responsibility get very fast results for their clients. So we have always said that once you learn this skill, it's brilliant skill to be a better people manager. But absolutely, it completely transforms your relationships with your clients. As well as outside of work, actually, relationships at home with your children, with your family, with your friends can also really benefit. It's a life skill. It can absolutely be applied in a sales function role. We have seen so many deals close faster, longer term deals being made, larger deals being made because of that co-collaboration we've just spoken about. And it is absolutely going to support and develop the capability of anyone who's got a sales function role.
0: Right. But this sounds like something that should be rolled out at scale and simultaneously if you really want to create impact, picking off a few here and there is all fine and dandy. And you're going to see little blips and then uh, probably get a lot of professional envy in uh, politics. So how, how does one deliver this to hundreds, thousands simultaneously so that everybody arrives at the same point that the leaders agreed that they with them that they needed to arrive at? That's the key. As a manager or a leader, I want to know that I can trust my people to turn up at the appointed time and place with the relevant amount of force and effort and to do so because they said that they would and to know I can trust that and I can trust them with my life. That's what I want. So how do I deliver that at scale?
1: Well, the book is based on the results that come out of a larger scale program called Star Manager. And the model that is explained in the book in quite a lot of detail is the model that then is embedded through transformational change through the larger program. So without wanting to say everyone's got to go through the program, the reality is when you put one individual through the program, they as an individual will have phenomenal improvements across their capability in many, many parts of their their business and personal lives. When you put all managers in an organization through it, you get what we call transformational change an absolute change wave And if you think you're sitting in a meeting where you're asking a powerful question, that can be great. But when you're in a meeting, when you ask a powerful question, and then your colleague comes up with another question, and your other colleague comes up with another question, before you know it, that meeting is on fire, and the outcome of that meeting is so much more productive. So there's a huge benefit in going through this at scale across an organization in quite a short space of time. The the study was done over a six-month period and got phenomenal results in improvements in in productivity, in performance, in direct return on investment was 74 times. But we also saw increases in... Sorry, hang on, say that again. In the academic study that London School of Economics and the UK government broke apart the stats, left, right and centre and cut it every way, every person that went through the programme their average contribution was 74 times greater than the cost of the program.
0: That's a pretty good ROI.
1: 74 times ROI. Pretty, pretty okay. I think many, many organizations would be very happy if they put a development program in that was averaging 74 times return. That's
0: well, I suspect that's be quite happy
1: with doubling. And then our numbers, and actually our numbers, we would have, that's been played down to include salary costs and everything, all the fully built up costs. So, that is a genuine, genuine number that came out. Right,
0: so that that's the final net, net number with salaries of everybody on those, the, those how many, 62 companies, 64 companies?
1: 62 companies that were on, it was all of the costs built up of the salaries, the time they would have been investing in the program, the cost of the materials, any administration for setting up the program, all of that was embedded into that. Wow. Statistic. So yeah, it wasn't a kind of a spin, us kind of accelerating on making it sound better. Um, it's actually the stripped down raw bottom line cost and benefit um, analysis. So that's really, really good. But I think what's even more exciting in today's market, Marcus, is the retention figures. If there's anyone yeah. that's struggling to retain staff right now and their team members, the retention almost disappeared, improved by a factor of six. So the organizations that had access and understood the STAR model and were utilizing it compared to the organizations that didn't have a control group, that didn't have access to it, the retention improved by a factor of six, and the organizations grew faster, and they were able to employ more people as well, um, but not managers. They were able to employ more general population of people because the managers were able to leverage more from them. It's a really positive outcome.
0: I'd love to, if you've got the data on it, to learn about client retention and trend reduction. So do you have any of that sales data?
1: I would love to. There are some studies being done at the moment where some of that information may come out of it, but we're probably a year away from the next academic study we're doing. The current study that was done by the government and London School of Economics didn't explicitly cover the sales data in in isolation. Um, so no, I'm afraid. It wasn't based around okay. sales, it was based all functions. So every function okay. went through that.
0: And there's no way of going back and interrogating the data around sales. Oh, well, nice try. No cigar. Um, (laughs) Okay. So give me an example of some scenarios where people have modified their behavior because they've gone from the command and control to operational coaching. And I'm really curious on the impact and the surprise because I've seen this kind of thing uh, have such a marked effect on team members and the liberation of creativity and the sense of purpose. And I'm just really curious to hear how it actually affects the human beings who have to live with the managers that are so often blamed for the reason that they leave. Yeah, so 50% of
1: people leave their job to get away from a four-line manager, so this it's a, it, they're big numbers. They're very big numbers here. The one of the really nice stories about the shift it can have when you actually learn the importance of changing the way you manage others. One of my favourite stories was a gentleman who was a very very senior leader of a extremely large organisation. So an organisation that had about forty thousand employees, and he was one of the senior leadership team members. Very good at his job, been around a long time, and really fancied himself as a fantastic manager and was learning about the star model and learning about the power of using questions instead of, I think, a tell culture. So moving away from this tell to ask. And he came away from the um, the learning from the programme and went back to work. And he had a member of his team who'd worked for him for a few years who came to him with an idea. And he came and she presented this idea and he thought in his head, Oh God, not again. I've seen this, I've done it, you know, it doesn't work. She doesn't understand it. I just need to tell her it doesn't work. And in that split second, he decided to apply the star model and he stopped and he thought and he asked her a question instead. Instead of telling her it's not going to work, he asked her what she would have to do to convince him that her idea was a good one. Mm-hmm. And she said that she would go, that she should go away. And she would come back with three different case study scenarios of how this could be applied across the organization. So he was playing a bit like, oh, well, I know all this anyway, but I've just been on this course. Maybe I should just you know, let her go and do that. So he said, OK, that's fine. And they agreed that next week she was going to come back with these ideas. So she came back the next week with the ideas and she sat down and he let her present them. He was really playing lip service at this point. And she came up with three different ideas, all of which blew him away. She was a very, very bright woman. She was very, very talented. And she came up with three ideas that he'd never thought of, that he genuinely thought could work. And they collectively worked through them. He asked her some more questions. She selected the one that they thought would have the greatest potential of delivering really fantastic outcomes for the organisation. And he let her go away and progress that project. His insight after that was that she had so much potential And she had so many ideas that he'd never come up with. And that he'd squandered squandered her learning for three years by just absolutely thinking he knew everything and not asking questions, just telling. And from that point onwards, he maybe had five or six years left in his career, decided to transform the way he was going to manage from then onwards to really allow others to contribute more and step into the roles they could do.
0: That's a lovely, lovely story. How frequently do you see that kind of um, epiphany and transformation?
1: All the time, if I'm honest. We had another another gentleman who had big sales teams he was managing. and He was always in the car, always on the road, driving from, from one site to another. Um, and every time he got in his car, everyone knew he was moving from site to site. He would get hundreds of phone calls every two minutes. The phone would ring. Can I do this? Can I do that? What about this? What about that? He was sitting in his phone, on his phone all day making these decisions for people. And again, he came out and decided to say, right, instead of answering those, I'm going to ask a question. He said that within two weeks, the phone stopped ringing in the car. So the first week, everyone rang, and he started commissioning people to go and do some thinking, come up back. They decided to come back. Very quickly, they started asking the questions in their own head before they picked up the phone. And they knew the answer, and they were really just looking for ratification once they didn't believe they needed to ask for permission the whole time because they did know the answer and they believed their manager now had confidence in them, they were just able to go away and do their jobs better
0: so for those of you who've been listening or worked with me in the past, you'll be familiar with the uh, drama triangle and the winner's triangle so the above the line below the line model and what this star model does is it, allows you to operate below the line from the winner's triangle in every interaction. And it keeps the emotion out of uh, your, and it keeps your judgment out of it. And it puts the responsibility exactly where it belongs with the person who owns the problem and who, if you rescue them, you'll end up diminishing them. The story that Laura just shared was an example of you know, clipping the wings of somebody uh, who was incredibly uh, well-qualified, clearly, and very capable and sounded incredibly bright.
1: I think the individual in that case turned out to actually be a, an Oxbridge graduate who had been basically put in a box doing a very transactional role and was never allowed to bring a full brain to
0: work. Right, so how, what percentage of people become a flight risk because of that frustration that they're no, not involved, they're not doing meaningful work? This baffles me. I mean, help me get to grips with this. Who on earth came up with the idea that creating internal competition and enough stress and tension for people to become sick and to create the conditions where they compete with one another, blame, and have to create excuses in order to feel uh, like they can make their mortgage payment, in what universe is that beneficial? To the shareholders, because everybody keeps lying and telling us that it's all about shareholder value. What the hell's going on?.
1: The reality is, in a, in a business where you have shareholders, it is important that you are adding value. The reality is it's not, a, it's not one or the other. You can have both. The evidence from the study, it's a very, very, very robust study, large of its, of its kind across all sectors, is it does drive the shareholder value. So it's not not if you do this that you're doing it at the expense of commercial outcome. You can have a better commercial outcome by putting this strategy in place, by using this methodology, by actually having the courtesy to believe that people will have the answers within themselves and ask them insightful, well-thought-through questions, not for your benefit to gather data, but for their benefit to do some better quality thinking and to build their confidence. That's what we're talking about. You've set people on fire. They're excited to come to work. They come up with the ideas and drive creativity, you drive innovation. It is a positive upward spiral. There's no risk to the shareholder.
0: I've been working with about 100 of the people who've been on the podcast over the last few months, pulling together an ecosystem. And what's really surprised me is not only by creating an environment where we're all High challenge, high support. So that you know, there are no flies uh, on any of the people in this organization, or in this cooperative, and they challenge one another. Every conversation uh, results in insight and advancement of understanding. And we've recently decided that we are going to work together with some cl- uh, you know, t- uh, test clients. And the offer was really very simple. Um, This is probably going to be a car crash. We've never, ever worked together. What we'd like to do is for you to be a guinea pig and for uh, to road test us, working on your darkest and gnarliest problem. And we'll give you two hours of our brightest minds if you tell us what your problem is and you bring yourself and your brightest minds. And then we'll work together on the problem. And we've got this going. And we're now dealing with Organizations like Salesforce, HubSpot, Danaher, WorldPay, for every one of these, seven in a row said yes. We've just done the first one today. It was the most insightful conversation I have ever had in business. And my client, uh, who uh, allowed us to uh, experiment with him, was blown away. But the beauty of all of this is now all of us are sparked to try and work out what we've really learned. So now we're getting together to reflect on it. And this is humanity's great superpower, our ability to cooperate and think together about the problem and then choreograph solutions. And this is what I'm hearing from you uh, in terms of you're creating these ecosystems internally by uh, implementing this approach, uh, this operational coaching approach. Yes, it's an
1: ecosystem. It's one that goes right across an organization. Yeah. Well,
0: shouldn't the organization be an ecosystem?
1: Well, absolutely. We, we talk about epic workplace cultures. So ethics stands for engaging, productive, inclusive, and collaborative. And it's exactly the outcome that we get from implementing STAR as a methodology you know, and having an inquiry-led approach right across your management and leadership. So in, in lots of organizations, if you're talking about sort of coaching, we're talking about operational coaching here, but if you talk about coaching. You're often talking about um, an intervention or a support system that maybe two or 3% of the organization get access to. What we're talking about with operational coaching is a benefit that is reached out to everybody across the organization. So, every line manager, if they utilize this, means they can reach every employee by helping to develop and support them. And you use the word superpower. I couldn't agree more. It's the top of our book, actually says the missing superpower that changes everything. Genuinely believe. They're big words, but we generally believe that if you could just learn to stop, think, and ask some insightful questions in a way that gets the other person to a result, So, stop, think, ask result is what Star stands for, it absolutely is a superpower that will set your career on fire, but also set your team's success on fire and the organisational outcomes.
0: And can you just repeat Epic again? It's engaging, productive.
1: This EPIC stands for engaging, productive, inclusive, and collaborative. And these are the outcomes we've seen from the study and from our own experience outside of the study in larger corporates, is that you create an engaging workplace environment. Productivity increases, which is what the LSE and government study was about, will it drive UK productivity, was the actual question that was asked. It's inclusive because everyone's individual values are being brought into the discussion and people feel that they have a voice in a company. And with a whole diversity, equity and inclusion agenda, that is critical that you are able to not have to walk on eggshells around that subject because you are treating everybody as an individual and inviting their contribution and then collaborative because you create brilliant collaboration across teams and within teams by inviting
0: people who ask questions to share their ideas. Okay. So if you're going to create that kind of transformation and change, you're going to need a leadership um, that is open and willing to be vulnerable and is willing to give quite a lot of trust, not only to you, but also to their managers um, who historically If we're being honest, in most organizations, they've been beating and blaming throughout their entire 30 or 40 year careers to climb to the top. How do you change the thinking of those kind of leaders? Or do you need to find a different kind of leader who's maybe younger and a bit fresher uh, behind the gills?
1: Well, what's so lovely about this methodology is it really does work for everybody. So we have had managing directors and c-suites and ceos of large organizations go through this program and we've first line managers utilize star and it gives that common language right from the, the top of an organization through the organization we've had some companies where they've literally put everybody from the c-suite to their aspirant managers through it right across their international portfolio of managers and they it's changed the way they have worked together so it's not it's, you're not putting anything at risk. You're not having to trust people in that way. You're still a line manager. You're still, you still have that management responsibility. The R in STAR is about getting to a result. This isn't a, a coaching conversation when you're on the other person's agenda. This is a pragmatic business intervention where you are asking questions with the view to help the other person get to a tangible result that is of value to you as a line manager as well. So it's not like you're sending people off to do their own thing. You've still got that line management responsibility so if you're a c-suite operator here you're still working with your colleagues in the c-suite but also with your direct reports and agreeing and uh, agreeing the outcomes it's just that they are doing more of the heavy lifting coming up with more of the ideas and getting more excited about implementing them with their teams and feel more responsibility for the results so you're bringing in everyone's contribution and not having to do every people's work for them in in you know, You get so much of your time back. You stop doing the doing. By leading more and coaching more and utilising your time there, you do a little bit less managing. You do a lot less doing. And that is where the power of getting your time back comes from. So it's not an abdication. It's not about having to take no responsibility or just hoping they do it. You're still involved in the process. It's just that you are doing higher value work.
0: For for those who are... Concerned about making the change because I don't believe people fear change. What they fear is uncertainty, and when they're being vulnerable and uh, they're feeling there's a perceived risk, you've got to understand that uncertainty is the key variable there, and what they're looking for is um, you know a sense of safety. My question is this: If you're going to let go of something that you're familiar with for something better. We've already established we're gonna do higher value behavior. What are the lower value behaviors that we're gonna have to give up, that we're gonna have to sacrifice?
1: (laughs) It's about stopping doing what you're doing. If you're a manager, you're not paid to do other people's jobs. You're paid to do your job. So it's getting comfortable with the fact that you might want to tick off your to-do list every day, because that gives you a sense of accomplishment but that isn't your job anymore. You have other people in the team whose job it is to do the doing, to do the tasks, and therefore you've got to reevaluate what your jobs and what your tasks are because they are more strategic, thoughtful tasks where you're seeing the benefits being delivered through other people. Looking behind you and thinking about who your succession plans are, how you're going to develop those people, how you're going to grow the organisation, Rather than resolving other people's problems and doing other people's work for them. It was really summed up brilliantly by what the organization I mentioned that put the entire management and leadership population through. What she said in a talk recently was that what she noticed is they'd been paying people to do their jobs plus the other person's jobs. So they were paying twice for a job to be done the person who yeah. the job and the manager that was now doing the job for the other person. And what they found. By utilizing this new concept and by changing their culture to be one of using star and creating an epic culture, what they found was they stopped doing other people's work. They were just doing their own work, which was the higher value work. So it's a mind shift and it's a mind shift away from your job is to tick tasks off. What is the job of a line manager?
0: Um, Well, I was going to ask you exactly that. I'd like you to define what is a manager.
1: This is something that has, and I think if you go back, we have not changed what the conception of a manager is since the Industrial Revolution. This idea that you go in there to fix problems, to schedule stuff, to manage other people, to do this work. The whole concept of management needs to be re-evalued and people management needs to be reevaluated. It has to be about how we develop those around us to be even better than they are the day before and utilize, people are our greatest resource. So how do we make our people great? How do I make our people great? You're only going to be lifted up by that. If you have great people, you will be successful. And you shouldn't be afraid that they're going to take your job, but that isn't the case. If roles grow, opportunities arise in front of you. You get pushed up and you become more successful. You're the one that's going to get the fast promotion. We see this all the time. The people that start utilizing questions instead of tell, have more successful people, but they become more successful. They get promoted all the time.
0: This is, uh, again, for those of you who followed my stuff for a while, the half a percent rule. Einstein said the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. Those who understand it earn it, those who don't pay it. And learning and how creating a learning organization where people take responsibility for their own learning, but the managers help them to improve by half a percent per day, on average, you will nearly triple the effectiveness and performance of each person in your in your team over the course of a year. And I've seen this played out consistently for the last 18 years. So the key is to create these small interventions. It's not about finding an hour-long kumbaya moment and uh, whacking out some candles and incense. And there is a place for that. But the reality is what people need is practical, on-the-job, in-the-moment coaching. And what people need is to, or managers need to be doing, is coaching what they see and hear, not waiting for um, six months to the next evaluation. but. Again, I'm curious, how often do we see managers being reluctant to engage in this way for fear of creating or embroiling themselves in conflict?
1: I think challenging conversations is, is the biggest thing. Most feedback we get is people being afraid to give feedback, scared to lean into a challenging conversation it is, there's so many reasons why that is quite a scary place, so many line managers, and, and we touched on the, the diversity inclusion, you don't want to get anything wrong, you don't upset anybody, you're not always sure how people are feeling, their own stresses, what, you know, you don't want someone to leave the organisation if you're struggling to recruit right now, so people are really, really nervous about leaning into challenging conversations. But there's two things that happen when you, um and we cover this quite well in the book actually, the first thing is to learn to give appreciative feedback. So you talk actually celebrating what good looks like because people tend to do more of that. And people always respond to appreciative feedback. And within that, it's actually about not just saying well done, but noticing what specifically they had done that was well and the impact that had. And doing that little and often can make such a big difference. So the first thing we do is build people's confidence with giving feedback by focusing on the positive. And that's really important. And everyone listening today could actually leave this podcast and look around them later on today or tomorrow morning to find somebody doing something well and then just go and let them know that you saw that and what they did that you really liked and why that was good. Which just I would do. I would ask everyone to go away and do that as an action from, from listening to this today. The second thing we then do is break down the concept of a challenging conversation. And give people the structures to put to ask themselves a question before they go into that, and we give them a bit of a structure to think through how to make a challenging conversation no longer challenging by thinking through the outcomes they really want to achieve from it. So that when they go into that conversation they have they built confidence in doing that in a constructive and helpful and supportive way. And then we also break down how to have developmental conversations. So there's three different types. We talk about giving feedback, but there's appreciative feedback, which actually when you learn to do it is an absolute pleasure to do and build the confidence there. We give particular structures around how to handle a challenging conversation and then developmental feedback as well. So those important things and actually just building the confidence is all you need. If you understand how to do it and how to do it well, and you know it can't really go wrong because the other person's doing the heavy lifting because you're asking questions and not being confrontational, then the challenge goes out of challenging conversations. So
0: again, this really seems to come back down to the intent of how a manager shows up in the moment and whether their intent is to try and develop the other person and give them agency and a sense of control, or whether they're going to try and just hang on to the job that they're not being paid to do. Is that pretty much the transition?
1: I think the intent is a really good, a really good way of looking at it. If you're coming from a good place and you're doing the right thing by for yourself, the organization and the other person, then it doesn't have to, it will never really go badly. And if the outcome is that they're not in the right job, actually acknowledging that and helping them find a job that's going to suit them better and giving them the structures and the means to do that is a good outcome it's good for them as well if someone's in the wrong job actually acknowledging that and leaving that job and finding a better job that suits them better where they can be more successful is only a good thing it might not feel good that day but it's definitely will will feel much better a few months down the line so I think it's it's not about avoiding tackling difficult conversations or making difficult decisions but it's doing it in a really respectful way that is good for everybody
0: would you mind and running us through a basic structure for having a challenging conversation? Because everybody in management and in sales faces that pretty much on a daily basis.
1: The essence, for starters, I suppose, we typically bring this in to the training once people have built an habitual response of developing sort of some strength around learning how to craft questions. So it's quite hard to go in at this point and say, this is how to do it you would have to be really thinking about the outcomes you want, as you said. So we would normally go in and we'd get you to do a bit of pre-work where we would give you um, some questions to consider ahead of having the conversation. Some of those questions might be things like, what is the outcome I want to achieve? What might be going on with this other person that I need to consider? What do I already know? What are the facts? What would be the best possible outcome for the other person? What might be the best possible outcome for the organization? And when would be a good time to have this conversation? What might be the best environment? What would they need from me in this conversation? So it's a series of questions that you just might take 15 minutes to sit down and quietly reflect and answer some of those questions yourself. And then think about how you want to structure that in a really helpful way for the other individual, where you would then explain the situation that you want to talk about and then work through a series of questions with them but by asking them questions get them to answer what they think is happening what they think the issue is how they think they're performing if it is a performance issue if you are focused on talking about facts and taking the emotion out of it then that's where you need to be so if you're reporting on what you've noticed what you've seen not what other people have said or what the rumors are or anything else but how you feel or how the what you have noticed or seen, then typically, when you take the emotion out of it, we can have a very constructive, very supportive conversation without the challenge.
0: Is there any circumstance under which that, that challenge or that friction is beneficial?
1: A creative challenge and creative friction, and creative tension, as we call it in motion, is hugely beneficial. It's, it's sometimes not made pleasant for other people. I think it's about how you do it and in what context. A challenging conversation around performance is normally when in line management situation you're dealing with it. That has to be managed really carefully and really well and really thought out, and that's what we're talking about. Being in a meeting and using challenge as a way to have a better innovator outcome, a better collaboration, I think is great, but it needs to be signposted and pre-agreed. So we might go into meetings and we would regularly, in Notion, for example, highlight the fact that myself and my co-director Dominic want to get to a good outcome and we will challenge each other or push back with our with our senior leadership team to make sure we get the best outcome for the organization but we'll typically signpost that so we'll ask the question "Say, look, I'm asking this specifically to challenge our preconceptions so you would be signposting the reason you've asked the question in a respectful way. It might still be a very challenging conversation, Marcus, but yep. you're contextualising it, that the intent of the you question get permission. is to simulate our thinking. Let's not assume the same as well. What assumptions are we making here? You know, Should we be asking a different question? What else could we do if we were to take a white sheet of paper here and say that it was possible? What would we be doing differently? what belief structures are holding us back from doing something that we know is going to be better. So it's really not allowing someone just to go through the status quo and being quite provocative. And you're good at provoc- being provocative, Marcus, for sure. Um, probably one of your asking stress <laughs> there's not wrong with being challenging in itself, but it needs to be done, you know, with respect, with humour often, and certainly, as you said, with permission. And it's very easy to set that environment up and still have hugely challenging conversations in a good way.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. That was very, very insightful. Okay. So we've come to the final furlong. Tell me this best mistake. When you've been learning your craft, what was the the best mistake that you made? It may not have been pleasant at the time, but as you look back, it was just such a powerful learning moment. And who did you need to apologize to? (laughs)
1: You well know I spend my life apologizing to lots of people because I'm quite a provocative person myself. Um, so that's probably not the best example. When I was learning my... At the end of the day, it's about managing to get into, as say, state, you've got to learn to build your triggers. So it's very, very easy when you are passionate, when you think you know something really well, and when you're invested in something to want to speak to want to share your insights you're an absolute expert in what you do you're probably very good if you're listening to this podcast you're probably very good at what you do or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast you wouldn't be wanting to get better so you know you're good and you know you've got a lot of answers so actually learning when you're passionate and knowledgeable and good it's learning to bite your tongue so you need to learn to ask a question and then bite your tongue and really Give the other person space to answer. Fighting your tongue is so so difficult. I, I probably my biggest. I I remember my biggest mistake. I I, I pre live it in my head all the time. Is I we had a really energetic member of our team, and he went away and did some work, and he came in to do a presentation. Um, looking at a range of different ways we could develop our academic qualifications within our within our um, business. And we had made a really big strategic decision a, a couple of years earlier that we would not do a particular qualification because it was a complete waste of time and money for the learners and for the organization. So it could never deliver an ROI. And he started his presentation by saying how we should do this, this one thing that you know, is very time consuming for the learner and didn't work. And I didn't bite my tongue. And I've always regretted that. Having asked, you know, having invited him to do this thinking, I wanted to move on to all the other amazing stuff he'd done. So what was my intention was good. I wanted to go, okay, understand that. but we could get stuck down that rabbit hole. You've done all this amazing work. I really want to hear all this other stuff you've done. And in that itself, I closed him off. And he never forgave me for that. He was very, very upset. Done all this work and he got really, really upset. And I've always, always regretted not biting my tongue on that moment
0: and just not. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that because I know those are difficult and humbling moments. And what's really, really interesting is how regret holds on to us. How have you used that in order to prevent yourself from making the same mistake twice? I
1: suppose I'm thinking about the triggers you build. So we talk a lot in the program and in the book um, and we do quite well in the book actually about building triggers. It's one of those things that's quite hard. So, in order to stop, you actually have to build the triggers to stop you doing a habitual response. So the stop, stop is the most important part of the star model. And I think I have developed the skill and built the triggers to stop, stop myself from, from doing the obvious response of just um, at, at speaking and settling to ask a question and recognising that the other person is always coming from a good place. And even if their ideas aren't validated or they're not um, they're not ultimately used, being actively listened to and being acknowledged for your contribution, even if your idea isn't one that's selected in the end, is still something that makes people feel hugely valued. And it only takes a moment. It's not a big, long, like you say, sit down conversation. It could just be in that moment someone pops in with an idea or something they want to talk about. Just finding that one minute, that two minutes, stop and properly listen to them without speaking. Just, just listening, focusing on what they're saying, and not listening about the thing you'd rather be doing, or not thinking about the stuff, the question you want to ask, or not thinking about what you're going to say next when they stop speaking. But just purely listening to them and demonstrating you're listening is worth everything.
0: This is really interesting because I've realized something, uh, certainly within sales, we're taught to ask questions in our early years, but we're taught not to ask closed questions, which again, I think is a mistake. If you know how to use them and when to use them appropriately, they're very powerful because they can be directional. And I was always told, don't ask why questions. Again, with the right intent and the right context, Those can be very powerful, but they need to be used sensitively. And I know you probably have opinions about that, but might change the why into a what or a how, as long as you're getting to the root cause. But I I think far, far too often, um, there's next to no training on listening. The answers that most salespeople give and the way most managers are um, not trained to give answers leaves people either confused or with ambiguity or feeling underserved. And their emotional awareness and sort of situational awareness of their impact on other people is generally not taught at all and is largely left to chance and scar tissue. So within the STAR programme, aside from just the questioning, I'm guessing that those other areas are also emphasised.
1: I'm to come up back on two things, actually, that you just said there. I can't resist going back to the, to the why and, and the situation there. So you're absolutely right. The concept of asking a why question is sort of OK, but you're better when you said the second time round that you'd need to change the word why to something else. So I think if you come in and say what specifically, if you replace the word why with the what, or, you know, how might we do this or what specifically do we need to do? or What was a specific reason you said that rather than why did we say that? I think that's fine. The minute you say why, do you know what happens? I'm sure you do know what happens the minute you say why.
0: Many people will get defensive.
1: Yeah, you immediately push people away into defensive, defensive defiance. Um, so people will, it'll be a, an, an automatic response, even if they think you're right, they'll they'll need to defend their situation. Whereas when you ask what specifically, and you just replace that word with a slightly different phrase, and then open to thinking, it opens a different cognitive thinking in their brain to actually answer the question and go back in and try and pick out what, what was the reason I already said that or what was behind that. They just it takes away the defense of nature. So we would always recommend you not to use the why start to a question and just adapt it so that's the first thing i have to come back to because it's a, a really simple thing and the second thing is on active listening actually the a in star is for obviously ask asking powerful questions but it's also for active listening and the one thing we do i think really really well and we're very passionate about is not just talk about superficially the benefit of listening or active listening we really break that down into listening at three different levels and ultimately we're trying to get people to intuitive listening which is when you're listening to what people aren't saying as well. And I think in a sales profession, really homing your intuitive listening skills that will pay you back time and time again.
0: What's not being said is so essential. Listening for the gaps, listening for the hesitation, the pregnant pause, um, the stammer, the slightly too long. And the thinking, whatever it happens to be, you need to be aware that listening is a whole body experience. And listening is the transfer of emotion, not just meaning. And because it's a whole body experience, you need to pay attention with your eyes, with your gut, with your ears. And with um. you, you really have to pay attention to the effect you are having on the other person. Because if you don't understand that, you you are not self-aware. I think that's the real grounding and a a basic understanding. If you don't understand the effect you are having on others, then chances are you probably need to go uh, and reflect and learn about the effect you are having. Would you agree?
1: 100%. I think the self-awareness piece is critical. The minute you become self-aware, it's so easy to change everything else.
0: Excellent, Laura. We've come to time. First of all, thank you for a fabulously insightful conversation. Thank you for having me. How can people get hold of you?
1: Well, I think there's three different things I would say. If you are interested to learn more about the Star Model, then I would say go and have a look at the book on Amazon. So it's called The Answer Is a Question, and it's available on Amazon. And it's obviously written by Laura Ashley Timms and Dominic Ashley Timms. So that's the first thing you could do. If you're interested in the program, then uh, Marcus was talking about, then starmanager.global is the website that will have all the background on that, starmanager.global. And if you want to learn more about me or want to connect with me, then you can find Laura Ashton's on LinkedIn. And I think I'm the only one there. So uh, you should be able to get to me quite easily.
0: Excellent. Laura, thank you. So this is Marcus Kapke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Definitely get a hold of the book. And if you'd like to find out more about STAR, either get in touch with Laura, or if you want to, get in touch with me. I'm a partner with Notion. I've worked with them for a while and highly recommend the STAR program. If you want to talk to me about broader coaching, then there's a link in the chat. And if you want to be a guest, Marcus at at
1: last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.